Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, Washington, D.C. It is officially the morning after the midterm elections, and it was a trip. It was a trip. Um, the last 12 <laughs> hours of my life have been just insane, um, and we have a lot to talk about today. So, truly, I mean, like, I took notes for this show. I have lots of resources. Like, we're ready to go. <clears throat> but I have no idea what this episode is actually going to look like because I, you know, I was taking these notes half asleep um, all night last night because things, like, I, you know, we all do our pre-writes. And my pre-write for this show was not representative of what actually happened. Um, so me and, you know, every other political commentator in the world... Um, not, you know, not that I'm really necessarily a political commentator, um, is just at, like, you know, they, they, all of their pre-writes are wrong. We're all working on correcting all of those things because we rode the polar coaster. We rode the polar coaster so hard. Um, and now we have a completely different set of results than we expected even like, you know, two days ago, even yesterday morning. Um, we expected something completely different from what we are actually seeing today. Um, so last night I watched MSNBC from about 8 p.m. to 2 a.m., which was <laughs> like horrifying. I will watch MSNBC for Steve Kornacki, but it's really like like watching MSNBC is like listening to the show. Like it's just a bunch of like like gossips, like sitting in a circle, just like chatting with each other, which is kind of delightful, but it's really not the news. It is just not the news, but I'll do anything for Steve Kornacki. Um, so I did watch that all night last night. Um, and again, what happened? Completely different from <coughs> what was expected. As of now, we still don't have um, a single party calling themselves for the House or the Senate. We don't know which way it's going to go. Um, even like up until midnight last night, people were surprised that we did not have the Republicans calling that they were in going to be in control of the House. We know now that this, you know, 30 vote majority that the um, Republicans expected is not going to come to fruition. Um, we have no idea what's going to happen in the Senate, but it's likely going to, I'm going to say, probably still going to say 50-50. If anything, the Democrats do have a chance of gaining a seat here. Um, and so it's really massively different from what we expected the actual turnout to be. Um, and this is really representative of a new political era that we are in. Um, you know, we have talked about over and over again the fact that we have this like historical precedent for these kinds of elections. Um, where the sitting president has the trifecta in the federal government. It's the first midterm election for any sitting president. Almost always, the out party does very, very well. Um, in 2010, when Obama had control of the presidency and then Democrats had um, both the House and the Senate, they lost 60 seats in the House in 2010. Like this massive, like massive, massive bloodletting. Um, and that's like, again, it's a similar trend that has happened throughout many, many, many midterm elections uh, when the when there's one party in power, because people love to vote for the out party because, you know, the median voter 
really has a lot of belief in, you know, separation of powers and all that kind of stuff. Checks and balances. Um, but that is not what we are seeing today. The results of this election very much are indicative of this entirely different new political era where all of this historical precedent that we've been kind of holding on to so strongly is no longer the case. It's no longer, you know, we can, like straight up, we can no longer use the past to predict the future, it seems, um, just because this new kind of type of polarization and partisanship is so unique to our, our current political time time period, which is a little scary because it's it's not really history repeating itself. It's this brand new situation that we are in that we can't predict where it's going to go. And we just have to kind of um, piece it together slowly but surely and see how things play out. Um, so here is what <laughs> we are going to do today. First, we are going to go, we're going to talk a little bit about turnout um, as it stands right now. Um, we're going to talk about what this last set of predictions was, you know, right before election day, on election morning, um, kind of how we thought that the evening was going to play out. And then we are going to go into what the actual results are going to be. So kind of overall, what the results are. We're then going to talk about um, what's happening in the House, what's happening in the Senate, what's happening in those governor's races. And then we're going to talk about some important ballot measures um, that also uh, were, were voted on during the midterms. And then finally, we're going to talk about some major, major takeaways that are going to kind of inform the next several months of um, political action, the next month of political maneuverings. <coughs> and then, of course, the, you know, next two years of, you know, goings on in Congress. So we're going to kind of talk about what what the future holds for electoral politics, for legislative politics, for all that. So whew, with all that being said, let's just jump right into it. Um, first things first is that we have um, like the overall turnout numbers. Um, and I haven't pulled out like the exact turnout numbers just because we we don't know and we don't know how it's like split between early vote and um, mail vote and all those things. Um, but there was very clearly a strong showing of early voters. Um, it was a pretty big percentage of people that did show out to vote early. Um, a lot of conversation that was happening during the day yesterday as those first batches of early vote numbers were coming out. It seemed that there was an indication that there was a dip in the number of young people that voted early in comparison to 2018 and 2020. And that caused a lot of concern for Democrats because, you know, a major source of power for the Democratic Party is within the within that young vote. Um, and that is something we saw during as the actual voting results came out. Um, we did see that there actually was a major uptick in the number of young people that were voting. Um, and a lot of people are crediting the young vote with kind of how well the Democrats did um, in this election cycle. But again, in those early numbers, at least when we were looking at those numbers as they were coming out kind of in the early afternoon, we didn't see that as, as nicely. Um, it also appeared that there was a dip in the number of people of color that were voting early, which is very interesting. Um, but then when you look at the actual election day numbers, um, and again, I don't know what the actual full numbers are, but what they were saying um, on MSNBC last night 
was that these numbers are almost, um, you know, competing with like presidential elections. Um, like there's like a really high level of turnout for this race, which is really interesting. People are very politically cued in and people are voting. And I think especially if we're seeing that young people are voting in larger numbers and they're voting for the Democrats in larger numbers, um, we're going to d- definitely see like an uptick in the actual amount of voter turnout. And the turnout in 2020 might now be indicative of what turnout is going to look like in the future, that we're getting up more towards like, you know, 70, 80 maybe more um, percentage turnout in the future, which is really interesting. Um, so it was a bigger turnout than usual. People are more politically engaged. They're, they're, they're more, they, what they, they're saying, like, people know they're, they're politically engaged and they know who they're for and they know who they're against. Um, so it is like this deeply polarized electorate, but it's also a very politically engaged electorate. Um, so we do have a little bit of like a, uh, kind of a two-sided coin here where like the polarization like probably isn't a good thing but we do we do again like increased turnout is a good thing especially when the people that are turning out know what they're know what they're voting for and know what they're know know what they're about um which is very interesting and this brings me to one of the takeaways that I'm going to talk about later regarding like early vote projections and polling in general we had so like saw so much concern and so much angst um, from the Democrats early in the day when they were looking at those early vote numbers. And they were like, well, that's it. It's already over when the polls hadn't even closed yet. Um, and it's just very interesting how those exit polls and how that early vote number really affects how people are looking at the race. And again, we talked about this last week or two weeks ago, but polling has this very it's like a very bad feedback loop, which again, we're going to talk about later, but it's this very negative, dark feedback loop where the polling comes out and says one thing. It says maybe the Democrats are doing poorly. It makes Democrats not want to go out and vote because they're not enthusiastic anymore. And then it continues to cycle around. And then Democrats don't go out and vote and then Democrats do poorly and then Democrats poll poorly and so on and so forth. When maybe that polling isn't actually like a real indicator of anything. And so it's depressing vote for no reason. Um, and it's the same thing if, if people are saying, oh, well, look, the early vote, there's so few young people that are coming out. The Democrats are going to get clobbered. Those people who are going to go out later in the day and vote might not go out and vote. Like, why are we reporting those things? Um, seems like a very bad strategy for both parties. But that's what I wanted to say on numbers. Of course, all those like final numbers are still coming out. Um, all those West Coast races continue to, um, you know, be very competitive. And then Arizona and Nevada always take a very, very long time to count their votes. So we're not going to know results from, from there for a while, at least like in terms of like total vote count. So we'll get there eventually. So next, we're going to talk about what that last set of predictions looked like. So if you were looking, literally, if you were looking at 5.38, like yesterday morning, like I literally was in a class at 12.45 yesterday, and we were looking at the 5.38 forecast, and they were like, yep, Democrats have a a 45% chance of winning the Senate, and they have like a 15% chance of winning the House. And obviously, opposite for the Republicans. Um, And the last takeaway was that the House was going to win between 15 and 30 seats. Um, and it was not going to be 
thought of as a wave unless they picked up 30 plus seats. So there was the conversation that was already being had of like, yeah, the the Republicans are going to win a lot of seats, but it's not going to be some by some like hugely historical margin. It's not going to be like 2010 where they lost by, you know, they lost the Democrats lost 60 seats. Like it, you know, they're gonna um, they're gonna win. It's gonna be by a lot, but it's not gonna be like a huge wave, um, which was kind of interesting. So there was that kind of characterization already happening, um, but not nearly as as distinctly as we actually saw it play out. Um, what was I gonna say? So the, 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 I was actually, I'm reading these notes that I took before everything happened, like doing like my little like pre-write notes. And I said that the, you know, the final prediction for the Senate had the Republicans winning 55% chance and the Democrats a 45% chance of winning. And I said that I think this is going to be the most notable takeaway from the whole cycle. How did the Democrats drop 15 to 20 points over the last month of election season? And I think that's just an issue of the polling. I don't think they actually dropped in those numbers. I think that there was just some external factor where the polling changed or something where suddenly these races that were never actually competitive now appear to be much more competitive than they were. That's And now that's going to be the main takeaway is why did we think that the race was going to completely go flip to the other side um, when that was actually not the case? Um and again, like these these like takeaway questions that I that I posed are really, <laughs> really interesting in hindsight. Right. So I said, like, did anything change or did all of the factors from the beginning of the summer just catch up to the Democrats? Ultimately, they put a lot of pressure on the importance of abortion and ignored a lot of other issues for a while. It seemed like a good strategy at the time because it brought Democrats up in the polls. But ultimately, the effect of that messaging strategy stagnated. That's what it looked like happened. That's what the conventional wisdom was, but it really was not the case. Um, that it appeared that the issue of abortion was going to not have as great of an impact. It actually had a huge impact. Very, very interesting. Um, and, you know, kind of on this, like looking at this past prediction, is like last night I was like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. Like, I can't believe I was telling all these people that like the Democrats were going to lose so much and like it was going to be such a bad night. But I was like, then I was like looking at Twitter and I was looking at all like the professional political pundits who have like, you know, multiple degrees in this kind of stuff. And them saying the same thing of like, we had no idea that this was going to be the case. We had the conventional wisdom was X, Y, Z. We had no way of knowing that this was actually going to be what happened. Uh, It makes you feel a lot less embarrassed when everybody is saying one thing and things actually turn out completely the opposite way. Um, And this kind of, okay, so this gets into, let's just talk about what actually happened. So the red wave did not materialize in the same way as it was expected. Uh, People have been joking that it was, instead of a red wave, it was um, red spotting in the middle of the, in the middle of your cycle. It was just cramps and bloating. Um, So the red wave really, really did not materialize. And instead, the Democrats really managed to defy this insane political gravity um, that they had kind of pushing against them. So they had the really low approval rating from Biden. They had record level inflation. Um, They had just polling moving against them. They had just the entire narrative around like the historical trends 
and yet they were still able to drive enough turnout in order to actually encourage again like election like historically significant like absolutely defying like traditional knowledge um for this election a lot of races that looked like they were going to be close just were not close and we're going to talk about that um and then like we also the democrats also flipped a lot of seats that we didn't expect to flip um like i don't know looking at the like looking at the forecast and looking at what those competitive races were like of that set of toss-up races i was like yeah like, the, the Republicans are probably going to win all of these toss-up races. They're probably going to get, like, one or two of the lean, likely D seats. And what actually happened is that the Democrats and Republicans are splitting those toss-up seats. And the Democrats are even making some gains into likely lean R seats. Um, and that's not to say that the Dem- that the Republicans aren't also getting likely slash lean Democrat seats. But it's not the bloodletting that we thought it was going to be. Um, and again, you know, kind of on the on the same topic of um, kind of conventional wisdom, I was talking with my you know political science professors yesterday, um, and we were having the same conversation of just hoping that the night we get to stem the stem the bleeding instead of kind of making any gains. And like I was talking with like you know professionals, people who teach this for a living, and like that was what everyone thought because that was the knowledge that we had available to us and that is just not the case um and again we're going to get into this a lot at the end of the show um because i think that this kind of throws everything into question um another big comment here is that kevin mccarthy is likely he's likely going to have a majority in the house at the end of this um but he's not going to have the big huge one that he thought he's not going to have a 20 seat majority he might have a five or six seat majority um there was (laughs) kevin mccarthy's like election night party had this like projection on the wall that said like take back the house and he was supposed to come out and speak when they had secured the majority um and that was like predicted to come around 11 o'clock obviously that's still not the case we still don't know whether or not the um Republicans are going to have the majority in the House. Um, And as of when I went to bed at two o'clock last night, he had still not come out to speak. I don't even know if he did come out to speak. Should we check? Let's 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 see if Kevin McCarthy actually spoke at his rally last night. Yeah, it does not. It does not look like it. And at midnight, there's a someone tweeted there's a you know the tweeted like the picture of the ballroom just like completely empty at midnight um hugely hugely embarrassing for kevin mccarthy um and now there's the question of okay if the republicans do end up taking the house how effective is mccarthy going to be as a speaker with a five-seat majority and now the conversation is is McCarthy even going to be elected as speaker? Like he's going to have a very difficult three months, um, two months, whatever, between now and January when the new Congress takes their seats. And there are going to be a whole lot of power grabs um, to try to kind of unseat McCarthy. Because again, this is hugely embarrassing. Every single factor was working for the benefit of the Republicans. Every, everything every single factor. Um, 
So people are certainly not pleased with his leadership of the party. Um, and I guess that the kind of like overall strategy. So I don't really see him, you know, being either effect like effective as a leader of this particular cohort. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Or kind of getting that kind of broad support that he needs, considering how truly embarrassing last night was for the Republicans. Whether or not they take the House doesn't really matter at this point. The narrative has changed so much that there is no way that they come out of this looking good. Um, And again, in 2010, the Democrats lost 60 seats. And usually, historically, in an election like this, the, the, the party in power loses 30 to 40 seats. Like, even a modestly sized win, even like 20 seats, would have been good for Republicans. But like in a political environment like this, where the president is so unpopular, again, we have record inflation. We've got all of this horrible stuff going on in the world. How did he blow it this bad? How? How did he do it? Um, it's so funny and it's so embarrassing for him. Um, and I saw a tweet also that I think is kind of probably the tagline for this for this narrative is, Unless this country is super pro-inflation, this is about Dobbs. And that's also a huge takeaway here, is that abortion was the main issue. Um, and we thought that the that like the abortion issue was going to become less significant over time. We thought that it kind of lost its marketing power, but it really did not. It really didn't. And I think that it's that and the anti-Trump wing of the party that really pushed things over the edge there um, for the Democrats. So now let's talk about a little bit more detail about some important races. Um, In the House, again, we've talked about the House a lot. um, The red wave did not materialize. Um, Virginia, again, is kind of a bellwether for a lot of these, uh, a lot of these kinds of election seasons. So the three races that we were really watching in Virginia were Elaine Luria, who was on the January 6th commission, very moderate Democrat in a very moderate seat. Um, We were also watching Spamberger in Virginia, similar, very moderate seat, very moderate candidate. And then Jennifer Wexton, um, who is in a little bit of a safer seat, but the kind of the, 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 the common political thought there was that it, if things really fall apart for the Democrats, Jennifer Wexton is going to be the first to go. Like, if Jennifer Wexton loses, all hope is lost. Um, and her race was called pretty early in the night, as was Abigail Spanberger's. So both of them did win their re-election campaigns, which is, again, a very good sign for the Democrats. I personally was very nervous about Spanberger. Um, that was kind of one of the races that I was really watching that it was going to kind of prove to me whether or not... Um, things were going to go one way or the other. Um, and with Spamberger winning her race and it getting called like, like 11, like pretty early, um, we kind of knew that things were not going to go as poorly as we thought they were going to go. Um, things were a little bit safer. And then Elaine Luria did lose her seat. Um, and again, like that's just, there's there's always going to be a couple that lose. Um, and again, with the, her involvement in the January 6th commission and running a very competitive race against a very competitive candidate, Jen Kiggins, it's just the way it goes. Um, and so Elaine is gone. Rest in peace. We love you. Thank you for all of your work. Anyway, moving on. 
Um, also, other important races to note here. Matt Cartwright in Pennsylvania's 8th District. Yo. Okay, so I am from, I live in Pennsylvania's 8th District. And that seat drives me insane because I don't understand how it works the way it works. It has not been called yet. Um, it's still pretty close. But this seat, let me actually pull up the PVI of the seat. PA8, 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 PV. See if I can actually pull it up here. Yeah, it's R plus one. It's an R plus one seat, but it voted for Trump in 2016, 53 to 43. It voted for, it's, it is a, it is a moderate seat that votes so heavily for the Republican top of ticket and then votes absolutely like moderately down the rest of the ballot. Matt Cartwright has been in office for a pretty long time. He does not run a very vocal campaign. He is not really out there that much. He is not super loud. <laughs> like He has like 2,000 followers on Twitter. He just sits there and does his thing and he wins over and over and over again. And it needs to be studied. It needs to be studied by someone who is a lot smarter than me. Um, it needs to be done because it is such, such an interesting seat. Um, it's where Scranton is, but it's like Scranton and then just like rural Pennsylvania people that didn't don't realize that Pennsylvania did not secede from the Union. They have Confederate flags. They're Trump supporters, like conservative, conservative area with like a little spot of blue. And I truly do not understand um, how that seat works the way it does. Matt Cartwright is just built different and he needs to be studied in a lab in a laboratory. It is so interesting to me. I quite literally wrote a paper <laughs> on uh, Matt Cartwright last year, and I still don't understand how he how he continues to defy every political odd. He is a frontline candidate for the Republicans every single cycle. I don't know if the Democrats are putting that much money into the race, I really don't think that they are putting that much money into the race, and the Republicans are. Is it is it an issue of candidate quality? Is it an issue of funding? Like what what's what's the issue here? Um, it is just so <laughs> it's so interesting to me, and I could talk about it forever. But it's mostly just me sitting there in disbelief. Um, but it's looking like Cartwright is going to win. Again, so shout out to him. Shout out to Pennsylvania's 8th District, the most confusing district in the United States of America. Um, not talked about nearly as nearly as much as it should. Okay, other important races. Cindy Axney in Iowa really thought that that was going to be a tough, tough race. Um, and it is very tough, but they still haven't called it yet. Um, the fact that Cindy is not losing by 10 points when she was like in a likely R seat um, is kind of a testament to how poorly this night is going went for the Republicans. Um, right now, the New York Times like projection map has it leaning R, but with 95% of the vote in, Zach Nunn has 50.3% of the vote, Cindy Axney has 49.7% of the vote. So like even if she loses... That vote share is wild. 
that vote share is wild because again like that was one of the like that was one of the seats that was like almost a guaranteed republican pickup and it's not guaranteed anymore um also republican seats that we thought were guaranteed but are not lauren bobert in colorado i didn't even know she was vulnerable is that bad <laughs> i don't i didn't even know she was vulnerable um they they pulled this up like a couple hours into last night and they're like look at that lauren bobert is down like three points i was like she's not supposed to win like i thought that it was just like marjorie taylor green's seat where like she was absolutely gonna win and there was no chance of anything else happening um but instead we have the challenger adam first up 51 percent to 49 percent with 90 percent of the vote in so it's still entirely possible that the um that the republicans are going to win here but i've already seen some people calling the race for adam first against lauren bobert um which is again wild to me that 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 kind of like institutional not that she's like institutionalized but that that this kind of figurehead of trumpism um is losing her seat and so you know in terms of people that are like so significantly part of that trump like a MAGA circle, we've got Lauren Boebert and Madison Cawthorn. Madison Cawthorn losing its primary, Lauren Boebert losing her general election. Like, this is indicative, in my opinion, of this, like, trumpling of the party moving out of prominence. Um, and we talked a little bit about, like, the Wyoming race, the Wyoming primary with um, Harriet Hagerman. Like, we were talking about whether or not Liz Cheney losing her seat because of like pro-Trump movement was indicative of kind of a pro-Trump feeling across the country. And it, it certainly appears as we thought that that is not the case. You know, Wyoming is just a deeply, deeply conservative state. Um, and so they're always going to be kind of farther to the right than even the median um, Republican voter. And that is what we see playing out, um, that Wyoming that's Wyoming primary is not indicative of the way that the Republican Party wants to go across the board. So that's an interesting point as well. And kind of on this as well, in terms of extremism, is we talked a lot about um, races in which the Democrats funded a kind of extremist conservative opponents um, in primaries and how they promoted those people, they ended up winning their races in order to give those vulnerable Democrats a little bit of a better chance of winning their races. And across the board, that strategy worked. Um, and something I was very concerned about when we actually, when we were kind of talking about that was, okay, it's all well and good that you want to give the Republicans a little bit of a better chance, or the Democrats a little bit of a better chance of winning by promoting a, a less competitive Republican candidate, but what do you do when, when those people actually win? What do you do when those people win and now we've got these people in Congress and we forever alter the balance of the, 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 the party or of the House? Like, what do you do when, when that is the case and it's just over? Um, but across the board, that was not the case. All of the these like far-right conservative election deniers lost their races. Um, and it really did help to promote the Democrats um, in these vulnerable, vulnerable seats. Super interesting how that's going to change election strategies moving forward.
Um, and of course, like there's always the debate of, you know, it's bad faith. It is a bad faith thing that the Democrats were doing. However, so is gerrymandering. Um, and the places where we see the Republicans doing really, really well are places that were gerrymandered extremely heavily. Um, so places like Ohio um, and Florida, they really did super well there, likely because of gerrymandering. And if anything, gerrymandering is just as anti-democratic, if not more anti-democratic. Um, so we have these two things going on on both ends. Why should the Democrats not fight fire with fire? Why shouldn't they? I don't know. Like, and again, this is this is this is me. This is me from my own little echo chamber bubble. You're only getting one side on this show. Um, why should the Democrats not kind of fight back against that gerrymandering in whatever way they know how? It's elections. It's elections, you know? Um, but anyway, that's just kind of a, another little tangent there. This show, this episode is not particularly structured because I have a lot of things to say and they're not very organized thoughts. This is just basically like stream of consciousness for an hour. And I'm actually really glad that I have this so that my dear poor roommates don't have to listen to me scream. Like I'm getting it all out of my system now. This is this is good. This is good. Um, anyway, a couple other house races that I want to talk about. Um, the first woman was elected to the Vermont congressional delegation. Becca Ballant uh, won her race. That was not thought that was not going to be super competitive there, but it's still very cool to note. Uh, Vermont is now the last state in the United States to elect a woman to Congress. So that's really exciting. Um, congratulations, Becca. Uh, we also have other races to talk about. Um, Elisa Slotkin, that was another super marginal race, kind of in the um, Spamberger-Luria category that we really thought was going to be vulnerable. Not as vulnerable as we thought it was going to be. She already had her election called for her. Um, there's also, oh my gosh, where is it? Uh, Summer Lee in Pennsylvania. Uh, that was like a lean, likely Republican seat. Uh, Summer Lee beat Mike Doyle by like a lot, 56% to 44%. Like that's crazy. Um, what other races did I want to talk about? I'm like hovering over the little New York Times map. Lisa Slotkin we talked about. Hmm. Well, I'm just going to stop talking about this now because I don't know what else I wanted to talk about and I can't I didn't write it down so that's on me but that's all right um okay moving on let's talk about the senate um oh my gosh we've got so much to talk about I am just gonna talk 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 okay so this was the biggest thing of the night ready for this guys we're still likely 50 50 in the senate but we got a big old pickup with John Fetterman baby <laughs> I yelled out loud I yelled out loud. Um, Fetterman was up all night um, and they called it at like one o'clock in the morning. Um, it's very, very exciting. So that's the that's the big news out, out of last night um, is that John Fetterman is going to be the next United States senator from the great state of Pennsylvania. Um, big, big pickup for the um, Democrats, especially after the debate performance and everything else. Um, we're going to have to 
probably spend like a lot of next week just straight up analyzing this race because again as I said a couple weeks ago I said that like if Fetterman wins this race it's going to be pointed as pointed out as like the the model of democratic campaigns in swing states moving forward like it like John Fetterman's race is the future of democratic politics and if they lose then it's going to be the biggest laughing stock of the of the cycle this is it like looking at this race looking at how fetterman ran his campaign that is the future of democratic politics that that is where we need to be moving um and i'm very excited to talk more about the impact of that race and talk about like everything that happened in the final days moving up to it but we just don't have time to get into all of that so we're going to not do that um we also had races that we thought were going to be not close, but races that we thought were going to be close, but actually were not close. Um, Washington, Patty Murray, people were a little bit concerned about her just because she was putting so much money into the race. Um, she already won 57% to 43%. It got called like immediately. Um, what other races? Um, um, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire also thought that that was going to be like a weirdly competitive race not competitive at all um there really was like a lot of conversation about those those two races being like hugely competitive but that is just absolutely not the way um it went that got called almost immediately um also on the Republican side, J.D. Vance did win pretty handily in Ohio against Tim Ryan. Um, Ted Budd did win pretty well in North Carolina, although that was kind of closer than we thought it was going to be. Um, and then, of course, in Florida, Marco Rubio wiped the floor with Val Demings. Uh, and hopefully we have a little bit more time to talk about Florida because there is a lot to talk about there. Um, in terms of races that have not been called yet, that likely won't be called for a while, we have Wisconsin. Right now it is at 51-49, but uh, it's, it's at least the New York Times is putting it as likely Republican with 95% of the vote in. Um, we also, um, get out, let me see the rest of it. Sorry, I'm fighting with the New York Times. What am I not fighting with the New York Times? Um, we also have Nevada, which is currently 50% Adam Laxalt and 47% Catherine Cortez Masto. Still termed as a toss-up, again, only 75% of the vote in there, so a lot of mail-in vote still to count. Um, and again, as we know from 2020, it's going to take a long time for those results to come out. And then we have Arizona. Um, Mark Kelly is up 51% to 46%. That is leaning D right now. Um, we'll see how that goes. I personally am going to... It, there's only 68% of the vote in, but I'm going to call Arizona for the Democrats. You heard it here first. Sheep Thrills has called Arizona for the Democrats. Um, additionally, we have Georgia, um, which is so close right now. 49.4% for Warnock, 48.5% um, for Herschel Walker. This is a complete toss-up, 95% of the vote in. Although considerably, as we know from Georgia, they do need to have 50% of the vote in order to avoid a runoff. And it's looking increasingly like there will be a runoff in Georgia. The question is now of whether or not that Georgia runoff is going to um, decide control of the Senate. If it does, that'd be crazy. If it doesn't, uh, we def definitely see indications of if if it's not like if the race is not 
literally for control of the Senate, Warnock is probably going to win because people are people voted for Herschel Walker, not because they liked Herschel Walker, but because they wanted the Republicans to have control of the Senate. That's no longer a possibility. I don't see there being huge turnout for Herschel Walker um, in December when that race happens. However, again, what do what does anyone know? What does anyone know? And then last but not least, something kind of interesting just to note is the Alaska Senate race. Um, that the, the way that Alaska works is they have like a, a jungle primary and then the top four candidates run um, in the general election. Lisa Murkowski is the incumbent there. She is down by about one point right now uh, with 74% of the vote in. Kelly Tshibaka, which is a great name, is um, currently in the lead, but not by like three 2,000 votes. Um, so, of course, anything can happen when that last 25% of the vote comes in. Um, so <laughs> that's the Senate. It's really going to be up to those um, kind of two or three really competitive seats. Um, and, and it's just the way it goes. We continue on. We continue on. Okay, moving on. Last but not least, for this section, we're going to talk about governors. Um, Stacey Abrams lost pretty considerably to Brian Kemp. Again, if we're looking at those numbers, comparing that Senate race to the governor's race, um, Warnock is incredibly outrunning Stacey Abrams. I think there's going to be a lot of punditry about what happened there. I don't really want to say one way or the other why that happened. Um, I just think that Brian Kemp, it's probably a little bit of an incumbency advantage that people like Brian Kemp um, a lot more than they like Herschel Walker. Also, Brian Kemp is a lot more removed from the, the Trump side of the party. Um, so I think it's maybe more of a pro-Kemp, pro, yeah, it's more of a pro-Kemp vote than anti-Stacey Abrams vote um, versus the Senate race where it was more of a pro, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what it is. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm so tired, guys. Um, sorry, I just keep checking my phone in case other races get called and I want to talk about it. LOL. Um, otherwise, Hobbs and Lake um, in Arizona. That is very, very close right now. Um, right now, Katie Hobbs has 50.33% of the vote and Kari Lake has 49.67% of the vote in. Again, only 66% of the vote is um, in and that's going to take a very long time for us to get official results. So I'm not going to kind of make a prediction one way or the other on that. Although, Hobbs did look very good with the early vote numbers. Um, so we'll see. We're back to talking about Maricopa County, baby. Everyone remember talking about Maricopa County like crazy in 2020? We're back. We're doing it again. Um, so fun. So exciting. Um, but again, Arizona is not going to give us full results soon. And so we've got like plenty of time for that. Um, Laura Kelly Democrat is going to be reelected as the governor of Kansas. That's another big, big hold for the Democrats. They were really nervous about that seat. Um, but again, I think that incumbency advantage, the issue of abortion, were really strongly working in Laura Kelly's favor. Um, and she did end up doing really well there. Um, Shapiro in Pennsylvania won over Mastriano. He won by a lot. That race got called really early. Again, Mastriano was one of the conservative, like, um, 
what's it called, insurrectionists that the Democrats worked to promote in order for the race to be easier for Shapiro. He won by like a landslide. Um, so that's a, kind of, an, again, an interesting overall kind of A, the question of kind of the election meddling and B, whether or not Pennsylvania is just going a little bit more blue these days, which is exciting. Um, Whitmer in um, Michigan won against Tudor Dixon, um, which is very exciting. That was another race that was thought that was going to be close. Um, other races that were not going to be close, but still kind of worked out the way that they we thought they were going to. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is the governor of Arkansas. Jared Polis won by like 20 in Colorado, which is pretty notable. Ron DeSantis won in Florida. Again, we're not going to have time to talk about the Florida Democrats, but We'll talk about him next week. Um, Kathy Hochul won in New York. Thought this race was going to be competitive coming down to the wire. Not necessarily the case. Um, Wes Moore in Maryland and Maura Healy in Massachusetts. Both Democratic gains. Very exciting. Uh, now, the both Michigan, Maryland, and Massachusetts all have the trifecta in state government, which is pretty great and very exciting for all of them. Westmore, I believe, is the first black governor of Maryland, and Maura Healey is the first out LGBTQ plus um, governor in Massachusetts, which is also very exciting and very interesting. Um, we also have Mike DeWine in Ohio. Eh, I thought this was going to be competitive, but it kind of did not go that way. Um, Ohio. Ohio. And then in terms of races that are still cl too close to call, we have Arizona, as I talked about, and then, um, oh my gosh, what's it called? Oregon. Oregon is still too close to call. Again, with this three-wing vote, uh, it's kind of an interesting race. Only 67% of the vote in. Tina Kotek, who's the Democrat, has 45.7% of the vote. Christine Drazen who's the Republican, has 44.7% of the vote. And then Betsy Johnson, the Independent, has 8.8% of the vote. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how the rest of that vote um, comes out and, and if that kind of changes the balance overall. We're, we're hoping, we're hoping for Tina. We're hoping that Tina ends up pulling it out. <sighs> okay. I think we're going to end up talking about voting measures next week because they're important and I want to give them enough time. Um, and I want to talk about some major takeaways in our last 10 or so minutes of this episode. Ooh, I'm like, I'm like out of breath right now. I feel like I'm talking so fast. <laughs> so much caffeine running through my body right now. Okay, let's talk about some major takeaways. Number one, and probably the most important thing that we are going to talk about um, for the next several, several weeks is... Are voters ready to move away from Donald Trump? The answer certainly appears to be yes. It really looks like um, Donald Trump is not the kingmaker that he once was. And this is especially important, kind of considering the fact that Donald Trump is thinking about announcing his re-election campaign to the presidency next week. Um, and now we have all of this kind of anti-Trump. Because again, the vote really appears to be more than voting for the Democrats, it's voting against the Republicans and voting against specifically Donald Trump. Um, and we can see that through the fact that this huge set of Demo uh, Republican candidates that were endorsed by Donald Trump lost by many, many, like lost pretty considerably um, across the board, not doing super well. Um, 
And that's going to be one of these really, really important takeaways from today is that Donald Trump just does not have the same staying power as he did a couple of years ago. And that's, I mean, it's a great sign for Ron DeSantis, who won by 20 vote, 20 points in um, Florida, that the, Democrat, the Republican Party is ready to move away from that wing. Um, additionally, kind of in the same vein, um, re- Democrats and, and other voters are ready to kind of challenge a lot of Republicans for election denial and for kind of threatening democracy. We knew that was going to be an issue that people voted on, but I think that it's actually more of an important issue than we even thought that it was going to be um, in the first place. So that's an interesting takeaway as, as well as how important is the democracy preservation vote um, ultimately. And we're definitely going to see that in terms of exit polling, um, how important that was and abortion was over issues of the, you know, the economy um, as we're looking at those vote breakdowns. So Donald Trump, you might be just SOL, bud, like it might just be over for him, um, which is kind of an exciting thing to say, to see, especially kind of, you know, for the health of our overall democracy. Um, the voters rejected the Republican Party. They just did. Like, that's the, that's the takeaway from tonight is that the Republican Party has been rejected um, as it stands, which means that the Republicans really need to do a lot of soul searching. Okay, takeaway number two is how do we best allocate our money? What are the best strategies for those things? So we had a lot of people saying, okay, well, you know, Ohio and North Carolina, we knew weren't going to do great. But also, they, they they did pretty well considering that they got very little support from the DSCC. Um, but a race like Florida, where Val Demings was getting a lot of support from the um, Democratic Party, really did not do well. So, you know, the question is now, we've talked about this a million times, but how do we allocate our money the most effectively? Would the would Tim Ryan and Sherry Beasley have had a better chance of winning if they had gotten more money funneled into their campaigns? It's entirely possible. It's entirely possible that that's the case. Um, however, again, as we talked about, money doesn't mean everything. And sometimes the state breakdown is just the way that the state breakdown is. Um, but it'd be it'll it'll be interesting to see if the, these election results, because again, these. Tim Ryan was not supposed to be in a competitive race, and he was. Sherry Beasley was not supposed to be in a competitive race, and he was. Um, And so the fact that they were in these very competitive races, if they had that extra benefit of money, would they have gotten pushed over the edge? And so that's going to be an interesting conversation that's happening within Democratic strategy circles moving forward. Um, And it's going to be interesting to see if there is more of a push now to funnel money into Ohio, into North Carolina, and away from Florida um, moving forward. Next, what is happening with polling? That's the biggest takeaway, I think. Well, actually, you know what? Yeah, okay. This is our. This is going to be the last takeaway I talk about, I think. Um, polling is the, for me, other than like the Donald Trump question, it is the number one biggest takeaway of um tonight of last night um we were all riding the polar coaster we were all riding the polar coaster the models were extremely inaccurate they were saying that the um again they were saying that the republicans were going to win 15 to 30 seats there was going to be a blowout 
Um, the Senate, you know, again, they were saying that the Senate, um, that the Democrats had, you know, less of a chance of winning. It was very, you know, it was very, very angsty against the Democrats. And that is just not the way it looks now. Like, again, even if the Democrats lose the House, even if they're still 50-50 in the Senate, it is so much of a better showing than people thought it was going to be that pundits, everyone, the the newscasters, the pundits, the elected officials, everybody is just absolutely shocked. Even people with insider information are surprised about what's happening. Um, and nobody knows anything. That was one of the biggest, you know, things that people were saying last night is nobody knows anything. Nobody knows anything. Nobody knows anything. If nobody knows anything, why do we do the polling? And if the polling just has this negative feedback loop, this negative effect on everything, um, and it's not accurate, why are we still doing it? So I think the future of polling is really up in the air right now. I don't know what happens to polling moving forward. Um, I don't see it still being an effective field um, moving forward. And I think that's also like, it kind of goes hand in hand with what I was talking about with the reporting of early vote counts. Like, none of that stuff is accurate. None of that stuff is effective for anybody. It's not It's not good. It's not good for turnout. It's not good for either party. Um, so, like, what, what, what do we do about it? Um, and I think the projection industry, I think that this punditry industry um, is really, really going to have to do some serious soul searching right now. Um, I think the 538s of the world, the real clear politics of the world, um, need to have a real come to Jesus moment about their projections. Um, and I'm not saying that like no polling is accurate, but I am saying that we, everybody had one very strong popular conception about how the night was going to go. And for it to go almost completely the opposite way shockingly, shockingly, completely the opposite way is not acceptable. And it's not good for our democracy. It's not good for anything. Um, and so, yeah, those are those are my three main takeaways from the night is Donald Trump, money and polling. There's also questions of I mean, I'm going to actually I'm going to expand the takeaway about money and just call it like campaign strategy and campaign allocation, um, because part of that also is candidate quality, which we'll also talk about next week because we are rapidly running out of time. Um, so a little bit of a wrap up here. Thank you for listening to my stream of consciousness rant over the last hour. I've had such a delightful time doing this with you. Um, as they said on MSNBC last night, angst is part of being a Democrat. And we all rode the polar coaster. We all experienced this angst. But I think that, like, all things considered, this is, I'm hopeful. I'm actually, I'm experiencing hope, which is shocking. I've never done that. I've never felt that before. How crazy is that? Um, so things are looking good. Things will continue to get updated throughout the week. Um, we'll probably have, like, more of a solid forecast. Things will probably be, like, pretty much solidified by this time next week. Um, so we'll be able to kind of talk about how everything actually broke down, what the next couple months of um, politics looks like in the House and the Senate. Um, and then we're just going to kind of, yeah, kind of project out what, what the next couple months of leadership battles are going to look like. Um, 
what it's going to look like as all of these new members transition into their roles over the next couple of months. So with all that being said, that's all I wanted to talk about today. Not even. I have so much more that I wanted to talk about today. I can't believe this. Um, I hope you all have a lovely week. I hope that you all had a lovely, lovely election day. I cannot wait to talk to you guys next week. Um, I hope you have a lovely Wednesday and I will talk to you soon.